Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr., and today I bring you Tim Ferriss. I've had tons of amazing guests on this show, well over 100 now, billionaires, astronauts, professional athletes, world-renowned entrepreneurs, and they've shared their insider secrets for success. They've offered everything from top book recommendations to success hacks to action items that you can use today to see results immediately. If you're like me, you love this kind of stuff, and if you're like me, you want to get the cliff notes, or I guess these days they call them the spark notes. Well, you can get access to the action plans from your favorite guests like Spartan Race founder Joe DeSena from episode 27 or Navy SEAL Mark Devine from episode 45 or maybe fitness guru Tony Horton from episode 85 plus other amazing tips and tactics to help you get clear on how to get from where you're at to where you want to be. I put all this in one place because you're busy and you want to get what you need quickly so you can move on with your day. Here's what I want you to do. Go to jimharshawjr.com slash action to get instant access to everything I just talked about. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, there are three dots on your screen. Just touch the three dots, select view full description. There you'll see the link to download all the incredible resources and action plans that I just mentioned. Now for today's guest. Now, if you've never heard of Tim Ferriss, you have probably been living under a rock, but he is the author of five number one New York Times bestselling books and Wall Street Journal bestsellers as well. Number one, bestsellers in five of them. Yes, that is correct. Uh, books like The 4-Hour Workweek, Tools of Titans. Um, he's also the host of The Tim Ferriss Show, uh, the first business and interview podcast to exceed 100 million downloads. It's now over 400 million downloads. But Tim is a world-class performer, uh, and he, he interviews world-class performers on his show, and I've been hoping to get him on the podcast for years, and this has finally come to fruition. And Tim was super gracious with his time, and I got so much amazing stuff out of him that I broke his interview into two episodes. And what I'm going to do, or what I've done, is uh, I've broken this episode, just the first, you're going to listen to the first half of the episode here today, uh, and at the end, I debrief on it. So I give you some concrete, clear action items to take with you so you can actually listen to this, but also put things into play, put things into practice in your life. And then I'm going to bring you the second half of this interview next week. So this is part one of my interview with Tim Ferriss. Check it out. Tim, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for making time, man. I know you're, uh, I know you're busy and, and we've been working on this for a while. So it's, uh, I'm just stoked to have you. And uh, let's dive right in. Uh, most, most of my listeners know who you are. They know that you are an experimenter. You're a person who's tested a lot of routines. I like to think of them as peak performance routines just for, for the average person, right? Not the, not the athlete necessarily. But I want to hear from you, Tim. Like, like what has stuck for you, right? Like you hear about morning routines, you talk about, here about people who, you know, you got to wake up at 5 a.m. and then meditation, yoga, exercise, bulletproof coffee, writing, journaling, eating protein right away, or intermittent fasting. Like, like what for you has stuck? Sure. I'm uh, happy to start there. I think as, uh, as context, I want to say a few things. Number one is that if you were to take all of the 
optimal or optimized morning routines of the people you respect and layer them on top of one another, your morning is going to last until 4 p.m. So you really, <laughs> right. you really have right. to pick and choose. Number two is that I think the one of the misconceptions perhaps about me is that I use routines to become super optimized. But that's not my first priority. Much like with weight training, my first priority is to decrease the likelihood of injury, not increase performance. For me with routines, I need stability or at least predictability, certainty in the form of routines to get to normal. And I just want to make that point because I think it's very important. And that is at least my impression of what we call normal societally is someone who is reasonably emotionally stable, sort of energetically reasonably stable, et cetera, et cetera, the things that you might put in that category of normal. And I have a very extensive history of struggling with depression, although in the last four to five years, I'd say six years, really, that's improved dramatically. And I could speak to that, but I've had a lot of struggles that have caused me to have chaotic days and chaotic days have caused me to have worse symptoms related to depression and anxiety. So not to take this to a dark place because that's not where I'm going with it, but I need routines and structure to get to normal. And so I think that's, that's what I'd want to say first. Some of the things that have stuck for me, at least if I'm looking right now at my routines, for instance, because I think within the context of quarantine, and I'm in my fifth or sixth week of quarantine now, that routines equal sanity. And the, the more uncertain your life seems, the more valuable certain levels of predictability are. So I have a, a, a few things. Number one, consistent breakfast, right? I don't pick and choose as if I'm at a at a buffet line in some type of gourmet restaurant. I have standard meals that I tend to rotate through. Uh, I have standard teas that I tend to rotate through in the morning. Uh, when I'm feeling overwhelmed, my go-to meditation is not guided meditation because I find my mind to just be too stochastic and all over the place. It would be transcendental meditation. So 20 minutes of TM, repeating a mantra, which is a word I dislike, but it could just as easily be a simple word like nature, or it could be a phrase like no struggle, it could be any number of things. Repeating that to give your mind a break from the other noise that might be generated without that type of overriding signal, right? So transcendental meditation would be one during times of overwhelm. Uh, another would be cold exposure or alternating temperature therapy of some type. It could be hot bath to cold shower. Uh, I happen to have uh, a pool, a small pool, but nonetheless, it's still pretty chilly. So I'm using that. I have a chest freezer that I use once that gets too warm. So you can get a pretty reasonably inexpensive chest freezer. And please talk to a proper electrician before you do anything. <laughs> I do not want to be responsible. I'm not responsible for anyone who electrocutes themselves. Sure. But chest freezer, uh, this is actually based on something uh, former MMA fighter Kyle Kingsbury uh, has done, which is modify, call can modify a simple chest freezer, which you can get for 200 bucks, 300 bucks, to be used as a constant temperature cold plunge. Uh, so that, that would be another. And then yesterday, for instance, if I'm feeling exceptionally under duress, 
And um, this is not to blame external factors, but if, if I feel like I am just unstable for some reason or feeling having an acute stress response to something that shouldn't produce such an acute stress response. Does that make sense? Like I've, I've had, for instance, a lot, this is going to sound ridiculous and I apologize in advance if it sounds obnoxious, but I've had a lot of stress around finances come up in the last week. I mean, acute financial worry and it makes no sense to me. If I look at on paper, my circumstances, it makes no sense, right? So there's, there's more to the story than just what's on the paper. Yeah, right, something internal. Exactly, so to try to sort through that, I think morning pages, which are uh, most famously from a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, but the right. practice of morning pages and you can buy, you really don't, uh, you, the, the artist's way is, is fantastic, but the workbook for morning pages specifically, which you can find on Amazon and elsewhere, is enough, in my opinion, is a fantastic way, the term she uses, of enabling spiritual windshield wipers or just taking your monkey mind and trapping it on paper so that you can take a break from whatever that loop is that you happen to be caught in. And... Uh, morning pages, therefore, is another safety net that I use on a regular basis. And we we could spend an entire episode talking about exercise, but ultimately, mind and body separation, this sort of Cartesian duality is, I think, completely artificial. I don't think that's controversial. So you, you can affect your mental state and biochemistry, neurochemistry through exercise. So getting at least an hour or two of walking in per day. Uh, I could speak to the benefits of, say, strength training, which I also do. I could speak to the benefits of high-intensity interval training, which I do these days on the Peloton. But walking itself, I mean, we are evolved to walk. I think that we've made many, many evolutionary trade-offs to be able to walk long distances. And I, I do think there is an intrinsic therapeutic value to walking, at least for me, at least an hour or two a day. And if I look at my sleep quality, it is directly correlated with the amount of walking, not necessarily wow. the intensity of exercise or caloric expenditure, but walking specifically. Now, that could be sort of fa false causality where it has nothing to do with the walking. It's that I'm outside getting sun. I mean, who knows, sure. right? But nonetheless, uh, those, are, those are a handful of things that come to mind offhand as real bedrocks. Uh, and I, I'm uh, sort of uh, have enough caffeine in my system to have a little bit of liquid personality, <laughs> so I'll just go for a, another Late minute. Honest. Yeah, I'll just go for another minute for, if I may. But that that is to say, none of these are rocket science, right? And I I think that the when I get myself into trouble, and conversely, when I am doing best, functioning at what some people might consider a very high level. It's because I am consistently not doing or consistently doing a handful of foundational things. It is not because I have some like secret Tibetan monk groin stretch <laughs> that I do on a bed of nails while drinking a special Pu'er tea that enables <laughs> these things. It's the, it's the fundamentals. Yeah. And for my listeners, you know, I talk about core habits. Like what are the few things, you know, the, the 80, 20 rule, right? It's like, what are the few things that give you the most results, right? 
And uh, oftentimes it's sleep, nutrition, and exercise. Like those are the foundational things. And then building off that, it tends to be things like journaling or prayer or other things like that, meditation yep. that, uh, that are sort of totally somewhat secondary. But, but these are the, so, so it sounds like Tim, what you're saying is you don't have this specific rote routine. You wake up at X time and you do A, B, C, D, E, and then you are like perfect for the day. It's like, it's a set of tools in your tool belt. It sounds like, is that right? Well, well, it is a set of tools. I do have a fairly predictable morning routine right now. I'll just tell you. So if, if that's helpful, it changes quite a lot depending on circumstances. So if yeah. I'm traveling and I'm living out of a hotel or at a friend's house in a guest room, it's different than when I'm at home, for instance, right? But right now, I wake up between 7 and 7.30. I, uh, and I, depending on the day, will either take my dog for a walk outside for about 45 minutes first thing or I'll do it around noon. So it's sort of an A or B schedule depending on what I need to do in the morning work-wise. And then I come downstairs, I make my dog food, I put sardine oil over that. Like I crack wild planet sardines. I take those sardines. I put them into the refrigerator because I just find that chilled sardines are more appetizing later <laughs> than room temperature sardines. Yeah. Uh, then I have a, a shake, which is just with cold water with uh, a scent protein as a whey protein isolate and athletic greens, which is a green supplement. Take a number of supplements. I could talk to what those are, but um, there's quite a lot in terms of this, the supplement department right now uh, for, for, I suppose, a lot of obvious reasons. Then I will sit down and uh, have a cup of tea. I will have been steeping water or rather heating water and then steeping tea while I'm having the shake and so on. So this morning that was red tea from Taiwan. I sit down and then I will do a one of several things, right? So this block of time is then reserved for phone calls with friends, I generally asking questions if we're trying to both make tactical decisions. So right now a lot of a lot of my friends are trying to decide to make decisions around finances and investing to invest or not to invest, if to invest, how to invest, blah, 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 blah. Right. And even if no action is taken, it's a way to, it's a, it's an excuse and a pretext for having a conversation with my friends, which has been great. And in having a conversation and connecting, but also talking about something that can bring you value. It can bring me value. And, and quite frankly, in addition to just the relationship, I should yeah, say. Yeah, totally. And, and I would say, you know, as we were discussing before we hit record, that this uh, experience that we're having right now, and, and uh, I don't mean to date this, but I think it's important context with COVID-19, which I, I think is, gonna, is not going to be a, a, an affair of weeks. It's going to be um, right. much longer than that. That whatever cracks you have or whatever issues you think you've dealt with that you perhaps believed you'd tightly compartmentalized and locked away often come to the surface. So you have the opportunity to sort of try to digest like five years of therapy in a short period of time, or it can just get foot stomped into the lunchbox that is your psyche. <laughs> and it's the, so you can, you can deal with it or you view it as an opportunity or you can view it as punishment, but either way, you're going to have to deal with it. And the reason I say this in the context of this conversation with my friends is that 
uh, and this has come up with past guests of mine on my podcast, that if you really want to get to the heart of someone's vulnerabilities, insecurities, beliefs, and so on, fears, desires, talking about money and sex are the two fastest ways to get there. (laughs) And uh, like if, if they have a talk therapist they've used for 10, 20 years, but they haven't talked a lot about those two things, then as soon as they talk to someone deeply, about either topic, a lot comes to the surface. So, so in a way, the, using the vehicle of talking about investing is a way to safely talk about fears and hopes and for friends to point out where other friends are just completely off base or making terrible assumptions about life. Uh, so the, the, ripple effects of talking about investing, I find to be much broader than investing alone. Okay, so flash forward, I have basically middle of the days can be a free for all, right? Because it depends a lot on what comes up these days. Then dinner with my girlfriend every night, very often we have a ritual at dinner these days. There's a particular candle we light, there's a way that we set up the table. We're using a a table that is different from our normal table right now uh, because the kitchen has effectively become my office. Uh, since my, my girlfriend has the real office in the house. And uh, that is our wind down procedure. We put on glasses for blocking blue light. And we have then after that, very often a sauna, uh, which also has some health implications uh, that uh, I think are beneficial right now. I have a small barrel sauna, which are surprisingly affordable. They sell them at Costco or they did for a period of time. And uh, then we'll watch something to wind down. And we have a different series for weekdays, which happens to be The Amazing Mrs. Maisel, uh, versus the weekend. So we very, we very, we made a conscious decision, this was my girlfriend's recommendation, to delineate between weekdays and weekends, to change our behaviors and sure. routines so that it's a little less like Groundhog Day when we're in quarantine, uh, at least on a, on a weekly basis. So, yeah. so there are things, there are... Uh, there are particular constants day to day, but it's not totally Vulcan military time. Yeah. So if I were to ask you this question six months from now or six months ago, what were your routines or what you know your routines will be in six months from now? Like, would those be 90% the same with maybe some evolution? Like, are, the, are you constantly evolving that, the routines that you do? I'm constantly testing. I hesitate to use the word evolve simply because tests don't always work out. So (laughs) sometimes it's devolving and uh, you, you try things and they end up being counterproductive and you then take stock and you reset. And I mean, I've certainly made, I mean, you can view it as mistakes or you can view it as I've, I've, I've made decisions, learned from those decisions. I've run experiments and some have produced the results I hoped and others have not. Others produce results that are better than I could have hoped. And in the case of routines, I think the meditation, basically there's a list of, let's just say 10 things that I know consistently contribute to better days. If I were to try to measure my day in some way, such as say Jim Collins does. So he has his sort of negative one emotional valence, zero plus one, And if you were to look at your daily emotional experience and rate them on a simple scale like that, if I look at those in the plus column, they consistently have, let's just say arbitrarily, 
at least three of those 10 elements, right? And those elements could be journaling. Those elements could be long conversation with friend or podcast that I'm pleased with. Uh, that could be walking one to two hours. It could be sex. It could be uh, intense exercise, or, for instance, right? an exercise session. I don't need to hit all of these, but if I don't hit at least three or four, I'm making that number up. Yeah. My days are more likely to be a zero or a negative one. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say for now is that I, I really firmly believe, and I didn't come up with this expression, but if you win the morning, you win the day. So I, I pay the most attention to the morning as my boot up sequence for the day. And if, if that gets hijacked, in some fashion, if I break, for instance, my phone tends to go on airplane mode. Uh, and actually, pre-COVID and when this winds down a little bit in terms of my own personal overwhelm, because I have hundreds and hundreds of inbound text messages and so on from friends. So, so the my time on phone has increased. But Typically, I would put my phone on airplane mode around, say, 7 or 8 p.m. and not take it off of airplane mode until at earliest 10 or 11 a.m. the next day. And if I violate that, I get myself into trouble. That is where it can negatively impact my sleep. That's where, uh, for instance, I might get some phone call from a person I've been hoping to connect with. I take it at 8 a.m. right after getting up. This actually happened to me last week. And... My friend's having a panic attack about something. In this case, he was caught in New York City. And it was just this avalanche of concerns, worries, panic, panic thoughts, requests, first thing in the morning. And it screwed up my day, or I should say it caused me internally to screw up my own day for the next 10 to 12 hours. I was a real mess. So that boot up sequence in the morning, which is how I think of it, is really sacred and paramount in my daily experience. And I, I just want to encourage the listener to, to, to think back to what Tim said in the very beginning here. Like if you layered all these world-class performers, you know, all of their, their sort of routines on top of another, one another, you know, you'd be doing these routines until 4 p.m. So pick what works for you, test and iterate. Yeah. And I want to go back to that, Tim, because you said, you, you test and sometimes you realize they're a mistake. Sometimes you fail. Sometimes they're wrong. So I want to talk about failure from that. Like how has failure factored into your success and, and not necessarily routines or maybe partially routines, but more, even more broadly, right? Whether it's investing or whether it's writing books or, or anything else that, that you've done, like how has failure been a factor and how do you view failure? And I want to like preface that by saying like, Everybody says, yeah, failure is a uh, you know, necessary you know, step on the path to success and failure is good and fail forward and blah, 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 blah. Like, I think a lot of people say that, but they don't actually believe it. You do so much testing and iterating mm -hmm. that you have to believe it just by virtue of all of the tests that you do. But I'm just curious of, of your experiences with failure and, and your views on it. Failure to me is... Well, let's, let's think about two things side by side. So risk, if I think about risk, risk is the likelihood of an irreversible negative outcome. 
to me. And the way I define that then dictates how I think about risk in many different areas. And most people who talk about risk tolerance don't actually take the time to define risk for themselves. What does that actually mean? Does it mean volatility? Does it mean things moving up and down? If so, what does that represent, right? What are we actually talking about when we talk about risk? Failure is similar, just in the way that people say, I just want to be successful. And that's, I think, utterly unhelpful and very often counterproductive unless it's defined really well. Uh, failure should also be defined really well. So step number one, whether it's for my own navigation of life or for other people, is to define what failure looks like. What is failure to you? And I'm not talking about on a macro level. It's like, let's let's look at the last year. What would you put in the failure category? And then look for patterns. What makes those failures? It's easy to fetishize failure. And uh, as you said, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, you got a like, million failures and this, that, and the other thing, and then you have your success. It's not inevitable that if you fail a lot, you're going to succeed later, I should say. There are people who fail their entire lives. And yeah. uh, I think the difference that I see, at least, in those who fail from a conventional perspective, and I'm going to come back to that, who ultimately have very large successes, there is an element of luck. I'm not going to deny that, but they view failure as feedback. In other words, they really treat their approach to life in a very scientific way. And that is most of us, well, none of us can predict the future. Most of us have very narrow bands of expertise, if any, and the world is full of unknowns. So you have to form a hypothesis. I think maybe if I do X, then Y at Z point in time, and then you test. And if it works, you try it again or you tweak it. If it doesn't work at all, maybe you try it again. Maybe if it fails twice, okay, then you abandon it or you modify it. And in that sense, uh, the people who I see, and, and I've tried to certainly do this in my own life, to benefit from failure take a lot of time to do post-game analysis on things that go wrong or things that turn out differently from what they anticipate, right? And I was, I was chatting recently with a very, very high-level investor, and he said, yeah, the, the important thing is to make no-tier decisions. And no-tier decisions means you make decision based on your current information and assumptions, and then you assess the results. And I, I don't want to make this super abstract, so I'll give a couple of examples. And we can come back to this. I'm going to skip over it for now because it's, it's not quite as concrete in a way but you know my certain certainly my deep depression during college and my year off and my near suicide could be worth mentioning at some point but it's not as easy to deconstruct in a sense there was there was a lot of luck involved with that that I that I think is is not terribly instructive but if we look at for instance my first home purchase in California this was around 2000 early 2008 and uh, time to buy a house. great time to buy a house. And it was a, stre <laughs> it was a stretch for me to buy this house. And I bought the house with an adjustable rate mortgage, like a lot of people did. And then what happened? Most of us know, <laughs> or a lot of us who are yeah. listening, unless you're very young, <laughs> know that the bottom fell out and uh, the prices plummeted. So I, I ended up on, on, the, on the wrong side of the trade, so to speak. I was, I was in a very bad position because the asset price of this first home, which was a real emotionally loaded 
high price decision for me dropped. I'm on an, an adjustable rate mortgage. I'm self-employed. And there was, there was a lot at the time I felt to worry about. Now, there's part of me that said, I can hold this indefinitely, no problem. Turned out, my confidence in being able to do that was not reflected in my actual emotional response. <laughs> and uh, it, it became very, very stressful. I decided to actually move to San Francisco to rent an apartment because I wanted to seek opportunity there. So there, there are a couple of things if we look back at my decision-making. So I felt like there was more opportunity for me, social and professional in San Francisco. This is a, about... Uh, so I actually bought the house in 2007. I take it back. I, brought, I, bought, I bought it in 2007. And uh, nonetheless, uh, everything else is true. And the, so I, I thought that I wanted to place myself geographically where I could have a larger surface area for luck. That just means that I would have the higher likelihood of chance encounters that could be very, very interesting to me personally and professionally. And San Francisco was that place. So I, I and I, I also uh, thought to myself, well, I have a mortgage to pay. I can find a relatively inexpensive place in San Francisco. Why, why don't I rent my place at the time in San Jose? And found a management company because I knew I didn't want to manage renters to handle this. And it turned out to be a huge pain in the ass, even with the management company. And uh, this dragged on for a while. The, uh, the renters turned out, and there, there are great tenants out there. Look, I've been a tenant. I've, I've had other great tenants at other points in time. But th these tenants were just terrible, right? They said, oh, yeah, great. You can keep all your stuff in here. No worries, because I didn't want to have to put stuff into storage. And then they moved in. They're like, hey, get your stuff out. We, we don't want your master bed and Oof. all this stuff. And yeah. once you have tenants in California, like they might as well own your house. So I was stuck in a very awkward position. I sold the house something like six months or nine months later at a, at a huge loss, right? Uh, or at, for me, what was a huge loss. Now, yeah. what's important here is not to look at that and say, well, it was a failure and we all learn from failures and life moves on. For me, I spent a lot of time thinking about what happened and looking back at this. And there were a couple of things that I gleaned from this. Okay. And I should, so the first is, and I think it was someone like Henry Ford, although Henry Ford and Abraham Lincoln and Oscar Wilde get all the quotes on the internet. Yeah, of course. Who said, I'll let you set the price if I can set the terms. So this was, this was the first example of really getting screwed because I paid too much attention to the price and not enough attention to the terms. Hmm. So, so lesson number one was pay incredible attention to terms and how they can change with not necessarily black SWAT events even, but worst case scenarios, right? And so that was lesson number one. Lesson number two was I didn't need to make back the money I had lost this in the way that I lost it. And that is I had been holding on to this house, dealing with these tenants and so on, because I said, well, I've lost X, X number of dollars, a few hundred thousand dollars in value, and I want to make that back or at least cover all my costs and then sell later at a higher price. 
But what I realized is that you don't need to make money back in the same asset class or the same way that you lost it. In fact, one could argue if you were so ill-equipped or had such poor decision-making that you lost all that money in the first place, maybe that's not where you should focus on making the money back. And so I, I, I realized that you can make money back in a different method than that through which you lost it, right? That's, that's really, really important. So I sold at a loss, which I'm glad I did because it freed up my attention to focus on my strengths instead of my weaknesses. Uh, so that would be, that'd be one example, right? The four hour work week, the first book of mine was rejected. I always lose track, but it, and I lose track because it's a high number. I was rejected by 27 <laughs> publishers, something like that. Wow. And with each of those rejections, once I was actually in New York and pitching these publishers and getting rejected, I would always ask my agent at the time, and getting my agent was a whole separate story because I was also turned down by a bunch of agents. Why did you turn this down? Like, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Because we want to improve the book or kill it, improve the pitch or drop it, could you please share with us any feedback, things yeah. we could improve, things that rubbed you the wrong way? learning from that rejection. That's right. And, you know, watching the video in a sense, right? Doing your best to kind of get the video of the match, right? To use, I used to watch a lot of video and back in the day when I was wrestling, although I'm not sure I want to embarrass myself by getting into that. <laughs> but the, the point is, by the time I got to the last pitch, I had so much feedback that the last pitch is what got the contract for the four hour work week. And it was treating failure as feedback that, and taking the time to really solicit that feedback, process it unemotionally when possible, and then tweak that I think enabled a lot of this, right? And, and there's, a, there's a whole long list. I remember the first startup investment I ever made was uh, in this startup. It was, I, I had a total, I had decided in advance that I would allocate, because I'd always fantasized about going to business school, but I decided after going through the application a few process a few times that it just didn't make sense for a whole bunch of reasons we could talk about. It does make sense for a lot of people, but I'd always fantasized about Stanford Business School. And I decided, well, what if I took you know the 120k that I would have spent out of my own pocket to go there for two years? It's expensive. It's probably even more now, and created a sort of a virtual Tim Ferriss fund for learning how to invest in startups. And that, yeah. So that would mean if if we spread it out over two years, that would mean 60k per year. Well, I got so excited about this first startup that I was considering investing in, which I did alongside someone more experienced that I decided to put in 50K. Now you can see the problem here. <laughs> because you need to build a portfolio, or one could argue, especially in the early stage startup game, you sure. need to build a portfolio so every startup can return the fund, so yeah. to speak, if they win. And you need enough bets so that if there's a high fatality rate that you stand a chance of succeeding. Well, I screwed that all up and that startup went to zero wow. uh, in very short order. So I had to then... I had to then work around it. But the question, so I think what you derive, the value you derive from failure for thinking about feedback still is directly related to the types of questions you ask yourself. And so some of the questions I asked myself were, all right, what were the mistakes I made and why did I make them? 
right? So it's not enough to identify your mistakes. You want to look at the, the ingredients that led up to that, right? That mistake. And right. the mistake I made was bet size. I, I chose a very uh, much too large of a bet size. And so I wanted to try to deconstruct why I made that mistake. All right, I got really excited about it and didn't consider the worst case scenario. I didn't consider what I would need to do if it didn't work out. And so I, I did a deep dive into that. And then one of the other questions I would ask is, okay, well, you committed to two years. What the hell are you going to do? So if this is still the Tim Ferriss fund, how are you going to make this work? Notice I didn't ask, can this work? I asked, how can you make this work? Yeah, interesting choice of words. It's, it, there's, a, there's a difference there, but it's a subtle difference, but it's a difference. Yeah, subtle, but huge difference. Sure. And that is for brainstorming. It's not to come up with the final perfect solution, but to brainstorm possible ways. And ultimately that led to d- deciding to pitch myself as and operate as not just an investor, but as an advisor which would be sweat equity. And that means I'd be putting in time and getting equity over a period of, say, a year or two, maybe once a quarter or something like that, instead of putting in money. And so that changed the lens through which I looked at the startup investing entirely. It no longer became just startup investing, but startup advising. And that's where some of my biggest successes came in because I wouldn't have had investing access to those deals to begin with. So in a sense, screwing up so badly and putting in this big chunk that went to zero was a, ended up being a huge blessing in disguise because it forced me to look at other avenues of entering deals, i.e. as an advisor, that had I only been cutting checks, probably wouldn't have enabled me to get into certain startups like Uber at the time, which had a different name. And uh, well, first stumble upon, which led to Uber, and then that's another actually one could call mistake, but because stumble upon turned to zero for me, yeah, I but remember led that to, website. Led, led led to Uber, and then a bunch of others like Shopify, for instance. I mean, I became an advisor to Shopify when they had something like eight employees, and now it's a publicly traded company with like thousands of sure. employees. I don't know the total number. So uh, those are a few that come to mind. Okay, I want to wrap up the episode, at least part one, right here, because there's so many actionable takeaways from this. And let me give you some actionable things, and I want to summarize this for you so you actually listen to this and, and don't just go off into the real world and, and you know go about being busy in your life again, but you actually implement what you learned here. So, so what did he talk about? He talked about morning routines just getting you to normal, not to like superhuman. It doesn't put him in some superhuman state. It gets him to normal, right? And And what is that level of normal, right? If you're not doing a morning routine, you roll out of bed whenever you get up and you don't really do any kind of routines, like, well, then that's your normal. But your normal, as he's defining it, is this optimized state, right? So so think of it as that way. And, and this, is not a, this is not an end in itself, but it is just a something that helps him get to an optimized state that he can, you know, he can go about his day and, and be productive. Um, and as he said, don't pick and, ch- you know, you got to pick and choose. Don't try to do them all. Otherwise, you'll be doing your morning routine until four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, he talked about just a few things that he does that are essential for him. So identify those core habits for yourself. And he talked about constantly testing new things. So what can you test? Like, what are the few things that, that you must do, right, first? And then what can you test? What can you add in there, right? Um, do you have to, you know, is it, is it drinking uh, water rate when you wake up, which is something that I do? 
Is it exercise? Is it meditation? Is it journaling? Like, tr- don't, don't try to do 10 things because you know that all those 10 things would be fantastic and they would put you in this optimized state at four o'clock in the afternoon and then you would have no time to actually execute, right? So what are those things, those few things that can give you the greatest results? And there's a great quote that says, um, uh, perfection is not when there's nothing left to add, but rather when there's nothing left to take away. So that's really what you're looking for here. In short, like he said, if you win the morning, you win the day. He also talked about failure. And he talked about the 27 or so pitches for his number one New York Times bestselling book, 20-some pitches that failed. Now, he didn't just hang his head and say, okay, sorry for, you know, thank you for your time and just walk away. He asked for feedback. Feedback is failure. Don't just fail. Failure in itself is not of value. Failure is only of value if you learn from it. And he does a lot of journaling, as you know, and he talks about, and he talks about this more in episode two or in the, in the second part of the interview. But treating failures feedback, like scientifically in doing, he called it a post-game analysis, it might be called an after-action report, whatever you want to call it, doing some writing on this. Not just, not just thinking about it, not just ruminating about it as you drift off to sleep or, or, or can't sleep because you, you're dealing with this failure psychologically in your head, but, but asking yourself, you know, like he said, last year, what did I fail at? What did I learn? And I had this conversation with one of my clients actually just recently, and we came up with a little worksheet for him. And this is these are the questions that were on that worksheet that, that he actually just spewed these out in a conversation. I wrote them all down, and I sent him a worksheet. I said, this is your worksheet, and these are the questions. So let me read these to you real quick. All right, they go like this. What missteps did I make? And there's six questions here. What missteps did I make, number one? Number two, which were avoidable? Number three, which were not avoidable? Number four, Did you repeat mistakes made before? Number five, what did you learn? Number six, how will you avoid these mistakes next time? All right, so some of these, uh, one, two, three of these were like one word or one sentence or one phrase answers, like super quick. Like this isn't like a half an hour journaling exercise. This is quick and to the point and brings you clarity. And this is, this is exactly what Tim is talking about in this episode. So asking yourself, learning from that failure and doing some journaling on it, doing some actual writing on it. And then lastly, he talked about, you don't need to make the money back in the same way you lost it. I'm going to uh, extrapolate that to, you don't have to get there the same way that you got here. Okay. So whatever got you to this point in your life, whatever you're doing as a profession or whatever you're doing in your health and fitness or whatever you're doing in your relationships, like Whatever got you here, that you don't have to do the same thing to get there, whatever the there is, like whatever there is for you. And hopefully you've defined that. Um, but you you can do it a different way. You don't have to do what you've always done. So I hope this is a, a good little summary that will give you just concrete things that you can go do, actionable things. So going to journal on some of these, these questions that can give you outsized results is going to be really helpful. Take action on this. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a share. Just tell somebody, hey, check out episode 246 of the Success Through Failure podcast. You can just text them the, the number, uh, jimharshajr.com slash 246, or, um, or you can, you know, of course, share it on social media and whatnot. That is how this stuff grows. I super appreciate your, uh, your help and support in growing this thing. Uh, give this a subscribe. Give this a, uh, a rating and review in iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to, uh, to this on. So thank you so much. I, I extend my deepest gratitude for that because that is how this show grows. So as always, until next time, take the time to get clear on your goals and embrace failure as a stepping stone on your path to success.